Welcome to today's J&EB Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Uh, the housekeeping to keep us, get us started. If you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, you'll see the slides for today's presentation. Uh, so please download that uh, document so you can follow along. We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, so please type those in the question block so we can moderate uh, questions to our presenter. And when I close the webinar today, uh, there'll be a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future sessions, uh, especially because Kristen and I were just talking about Journal Club in the spring, we'll, which will actually make our 10th year of Journal Club. Uh, so we're definitely interested in um, topics that looking forward into the fall and the spring of next year. And then watch for the email follow-up, which will be um, – probably Wednesday of this week by email with a link to the recording, uh, the handout, and the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. Uh, so I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, um, Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today, our speaker is Major Juliana Jane, Ph.D., who is the Military Deputy Chief of the Military Nutrition Division at the United States Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine at Natick, Massachusetts. Major Jane has completed her bachelor's and master's degrees in nutrition and her doctoral degree in public health. She has been an active duty Army officer since 2006. She has held multiple, multiple positions in clinical nutrition and hospital food service management. Currently, Major Jane is a principal investigator at USA RIEM, where her research focuses on the eating behaviors of service members and factors that influence nutritional status, nutrition-related health outcomes, and military readiness. Major Jane also serves on the research committees of Army Baylor University Graduate Program in nutrition students and is an adjunct professor for this program. Today, she's going to be talking with us about power analysis, effect size, and logistic regression. I want to thank her for joining us today, and at this point, I can pass it over to Major Jane. All right. Thank you very much, Kristen, for that introduction, and thank you for everyone who's joining us today. Um, I'm excited to be able to share with you um, as the Journal Club presenter. So let's go ahead and get right into it. So I do need to let me make sure my slides are advancing here. I do need to share that this is a standard disclaimer as a government employee. Um, just briefly, the agenda today, we're going to go over um, the competencies for the Journal Club presentation. Um, essentially, here's an overview of what you can expect, um, which will focus on the research methods used in the article, eating behaviors are associated with physical fitness and body composition among U.S. Army soldiers. The emphasis will be on the rationale behind the research methods used in the data analysis, conducting power analysis, and implementing logistic regression for dichotomous dependent variables. There will also be a discussion on interpreting and evaluating logistic regression results, and also time for questions and discussion. All right, so here's the competencies that we'll be covering today or that the uh, presentation will cover. All right, so I think some context on the study rationale is helpful before getting into the explanation of the methods that was used or that were used. 
we went into the study thinking about how Army culture, Army requirements, and how the military environment may influence eating behaviors. To start, often soldiers are compared to collegiate athletes as the closest civilian comparison group, mainly because of age and physical fitness levels. But there are some pretty big differences between the two groups that warrant discussion. So to start, service members agree to a minimum term of service. Um, this is a 24-7 commitment that's legally binding. As, a, as opposed to collegiate athletes who participate voluntarily, they're free to leave, although they may have an academic scholarship that does influence their uh, participation. Service members have a structured or rigid training and also have to be prepared for short notice deployments versus collegiate athletes have a more controllable training schedule that's typically set by coaches. Uh, service members have a biannual BMI assessment, meaning that every six months they're assessed for BMI standards and their adherence to these standards, as well as a biannual physical fitness test. Versus for collegiate athletes, there's really no standard for weight or BMI, although there are some exceptions for weight class sports. Um, performance is essential and could be a matter of survival versus for collegiate athletes, physical fitness and performance are expected, but it's not quite to the same um, level as we see for our service members. So we also wanted to understand um, what are some of the military specific factors that may uh, affect eating behaviors, and we see these things in the following ways. So service members have pressures related to appearance standards, body composition standards, physical fitness requirements and testing, as well as punitive consequences for noncompliance. So they have physically demanding days that uh, comprise of long training, they have strenuous occupations, and they also often have excess energy expenditure based on the amount of time that they have for eating or the foods that they have, um, as opposed to what they're doing so that during those training or during that um, operational environment. Additionally, uh, there's stressful operational environments, including night operations that disrupt sleep patterns. They may work in austere, extreme environments. There may be limited time for meals, and there may be intermittent restricted access to foods. And this is also um, in addition to psychological stress that certainly has an impact on appetite eating behaviors. Uh, these environments tend to be unpredictable. There are unknown future requirements, and so they need to be ready at any time. So this leads to our conceptual framework. Uh, this graphic is a visual, visual representation of how we have approached our work on the topic of eating behavior in the military and helps to illustrate factors that may influence eating behaviors among soldiers. So let's get into the research questions and the hypothesis. So keep in mind that study design has a lot to do with what research questions can be asked. Uh, since this was a cross-sectional study, our research questions were focused on associations. If we had done a longitudinal study, we could have used predictive language, but since it was a cross-sectional design, our goal was to establish significant relationships, recognizing that we could not make claims about causality. Using the conceptual framework on the previous slide, we developed our research questions 
which were to understand if there are associations between eating behaviors, soldier characteristics, and feeling body composition and physical fitness standards. So the standards that we talked about previously where they're tested every six months for meeting body composition and physical fitness standards, we wanted to understand the associations between eating behaviors and those two outcomes. The other question was, are there eating behaviors and characteristics of soldiers that discriminate those who score low from those who score high on the physical fitness test? So based on our previous work in this area, we had a directional hypothesis and we were expecting to see that specific eating behaviors would be associated with meeting or potentially not meeting standards and physical performance. All right, so let's talk about the methods. The research tool that we used to gather the data on eating behaviors was the Military Eating Behavior Survey, or we abbreviate as the MEBS. Uh, this was developed and validated by our group um, at the location where I am, which is the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, or we uh, use the acronym USARIUM. The development and validation of the MEBS was a three-year-long, six-phase process occurring at eight Army installations with about 1,800 participants. Um, I provide a link to the manuscript outlining the development of this tool at the end of the presentation if anyone is interested. All right, so let's talk power. All right, to start, let's talk about two kinds of power analysis. So there's a priori power analysis, which is done before the data are collected. This is appropriate when you are designing a study and you want to be sure to enroll enough volunteers to answer your research question or questions. A post hoc power analysis is done after the data are collected and you have some additional research questions, but you need to be sure your sample was adequate to support the additional analysis that you want to do. So why is power analysis important? So power is the probability of detecting an effect given that the effect is really there. So in other words, it is the probability that you can reject the null hypothesis when it is really false. As you recall, we had a hypothesis that specific eating behaviors would be associated with our outcomes, and so conducting a power analysis helped us know we had the number of volunteers needed to detect our goal effect size. We could have also rephrased the hypothesis as a null hypothesis to say that we anticipated no difference in the eating behaviors of those who failed or did not fail body composition or physical fitness outcomes. So let's walk through some of the components of the power analysis if done a priori. So typically I use G-Power, which is available as a free download for Mac or Windows. There are many different programs for conducting power analysis. This just happens to be the one that I prefer. So first you need to decide what type of statistical test you plan to conduct. In this case, we were doing a logistic regression and I'll get into the why of that in the next slide. Second, you need to decide to choose a one or two tailed test. A one-tailed test doesn't require as large of a sample size, but it is only appropriate to interpret the results if the effect meets the criterion for significance and it falls in the direction of your hypothesis. We wanted to know about a significant effect regardless of direction, so we chose a two-tailed test. Remember, we wanted to know if there was an association. We didn't just want to know if it was a negative or a positive association, so a two-tailed two -tailed test was the right choice. 
Third, we need to decide what effect size that you're aiming for. So the odds ratio, which we abbreviate as OR, um, is probably the most um, significant or the most widely used index of effect size in epidemiological studies. In this particular analysis, we were satisfied with setting the parameters to detect a small effect size, so I set it to be an odds ratio of 1.2. Fourth, you need to decide on the level of statistical significance. Using a 5% alpha for your test means that you're willing to accept a 5% probability that you have some that you have incorrectly rejected the null hypothesis. So an alpha of 0.05 is commonly accepted, although sometimes you see statistical significance set as 0.01. Just keep in mind that lowering the alpha will increase your minimum sample size. Uh, fourth, you need to choose your power level. We chose 80% because it represents a reasonable balance between risk of a type 1 or a type 2 error. Um, at 80% power, we had no more than a 20% probability of making a type 2 error. So as you can see this graphic on the slide, this is the two-by-two two table that you may remember seeing in your statistics courses that describe what happens when you reject the null hypothesis when it's actually true. That's called a type 1 error. Um, or you do not reject the null hypothesis when it's actually false, which is a type 2 error. By setting the parameters of your power analysis carefully, you minimize the risk of making a type 1 or a type 2 error. So to do this post hoc, meaning after you've already done your data collection, the selections are primarily the same, except you input the number of volunteers you had to see if you've reached the power level you desire. For this study that I'm presenting today, we achieved 86% power, so we proceeded with the planned analysis. All right, so the next slides will go into detail about how I set up the models for the statistical analysis. So let's go over our variables for the study. Uh, we had three dependent variables, body composition standards failure, physical fitness test failure, and high fitness test performance. Army body composition assessment involves measuring the circumference of the neck, waist, and hip for women, and the neck and waist for men. Um, body composition standards failure was determined by a yes response to the question, have you ever failed the body fat tape test? And so keep in mind that this was self-reported information that the volunteer, um, you know, input onto their uh, questionnaire. Um, so the possible responses were yes, no, or never taken or tested. So those who had never taken the tape test are those who had either never exceeded their screening for their BMI standards or those who had not yet been in the Army long enough to be screened. So some of our volunteers that we um, had for the study were very new to the military and so had not yet had an opportunity to be tested. Physical fitness test failure was determined by a yes response to the question, have you failed a record physical fitness or readiness test since initial military training? And again, they had the opportunity to respond with a yes, a no, or never taken or tested. So at the time of the study, the Army physical fitness test consisted of three timed events, push-ups, sit-ups, and a two-mile run. Those who achieved over 90 points on each event, so they scored a 270 out of 300 possible points um, on the Army physical fitness test, 
received the Army Physical Fitness Excellent Badge, which means that we designated them as higher performers. Lower performers were designated as those who had failed physical fitness standards one or more times and whose most recent U.S. Army uh, fitness test score was less than 269 points or equal to 269. And so we designated high performers as though who had never failed physical fitness standards and they had gotten the 270 points or above. Um, because all of these were categorized as a yes or no response, a logistic regression analysis was the appropriate statistical test to run to answer our research questions. These variables were coded as a zero or a one, which is required for logistic regression. All right, so moving on to the independent variables, we had eight eating behaviors that we were interested in examining in association with our dependent variables. As you can see, they were not all the same type. For example, the where most meals were eaten variable had five response options, whereas time spent doing physical activity had a continuous response. Logistic regression models can handle both categorical and continuous independent variables in the same model. All right, so control variables are those that may be related to both the independent and the dependent variable. For the sake of time, I won't go into the rationale behind why all of these were chosen, but you should always be able to justify why you adjusted your model with the control variables that you chose. And typically this is um, a section in your methods where you just briefly describe why you felt like these control variables were important to select. All right, so let's talk about the methods um, that we used, specifically the logistic regression. And so assumptions testing for logistic regression isn't as complex as other statistical tests, but there are still some things to consider. And keep in mind that assumptions essentially are things that you will do diagnostically before you run your test to make sure that you have, or uh, that your variables are really, um, really do support running a logistic regression. So number one, do you have binary dependent variables? So for us, that was easy. Yes, we do. They're all coded zero, one, or yes or no. Do you have at least one independent variable? Yes, we did. Um, are your observations independent? So this means that the observations in the sample are independent from one another, meaning that the measurements for each volunteer are not influenced by or related to the measurements of other volunteers and the observation should not come from repeated measures of the same individual. So this was a cross-sectional study. We did not feel like there was any, any sort of interrelationship between volunteers. And so we um, said that, yes, we had met that assumption. And then number four, is there a linear relationship between continuous independent variables and the dependent variable? You can test to check this before you proceed with running your model or your models. It's important to know that if you do not run the statistical tests on these assumptions correctly, the results you get when running logistic regression may not be valid. So for your awareness, there are ways to transform variables um, if there are issues with linearity, but we did not have any issues with this study, so we went ahead with our log logistic regression model. All right, so let's talk about the results. All right, so even descriptive statistics can be presented in a meaningful way. Uh, this is the table one from the study, and table one showed the characteristics of the volunteers, 
but also served to show that there were differences between those who were high performers and those who were low performers, which was a partial answer to one of our research questions. So we found that high-performing soldiers, when we compared those to low-performing soldiers, ate more frequently at home, so 14% versus 31%, ate less from fast food or vending locations, 18% versus 27%, skipped breakfast left less often, 7% versus 17%, and ate distracted less frequently, 37% versus 80 or 48%. And they were also uh, more likely to have received formal nutrition education, so 37% versus 24%. So we determined that these differences were statistically significant by performing post hoc testing using ANOVA or continuous, for continuous variables or chi-square statistics for categorical variables. So keep in mind that that sort of post hoc testing allows you to determine if they were different, if it was statistically significant, and then you use different tests based on the type of variable that you have. All right, so let's talk about understanding logistic regression results. So results of logistic regression are typically presented as odds ratios and 95% confidence intervals. The odds ratio is your point estimate, and the confidence interval is the range within which you can be 95% confident that the true value lies within. One way of stating the null hypothesis is to state that its odds ratio will be one. If the null is consistent with the observed data, then, I'm sorry, if the null is consistent with the 95% confidence interval, then the null is one of the values that is, is consistent with the observed data, so the null hypothesis cannot be rejected. So one way to think of the confidence interval is like arms that embrace values that are consistent with the data. If the one is embraced by the confidence interval, then you can reject the null hypothesis. If the confidence interval includes the one, then you can reject the null hypothesis when, when you um, reject the null hypothesis, um, you're saying essentially that there is a difference. So keep in mind that if your arms embrace the values and it does not include the one, then that means that you can be 95% confident that you can reject your null. If the confidence interval ex excludes the one, then you can reject the null hypothesis, which indicates the statistical significance and that the p-value must be less than 0 0.05. So this is just a way to consider that the one essentially um, is sort of your cut point to say whether or not you can reject the null. So if you can reject the null, then you can be pretty confident that there is a difference um, between, or you can reject the null saying that there is a difference um, in, your, in your data. The lower graphic shows three statistical significant results, which as you can see, do not include one in the corresponding confidence interval. So you can see that based on this lower graphic, um, we have two that were indicating higher odds and one that's indicating lower odds. And so you can see that neither, none of them, neither three, none of the three um, have their 95% uh, confidence interval um, over the one. And so we can reject the null in these situations and consider them to be statistically significant. All right, so let's look at the results of the regression models. So this is a lower odds example. 
Although the results are presented in a single table, keep in mind these are the results from three different models because we had three different uh, dependent variables or outcomes. One of the first things you need to know when interpreting logistic regression results is what the referent group is. This is sometimes included in the table without any results, or in this case, since the table was already large, it was, it was put in the footnote. So for the where most meals were eaten variable, the referent group was eating at home. Most of the time, your statistical software chooses the referent group based on the group with the largest proportion of responses. Um, it is possible to change the referent group if it makes sense for your research question, but I did not, it didn't in this case, so we can just go into the results. The correct terminology for interpreting odds ratios is raised or lowered, and the number outside the parentheses is the point estimate, and the range in the parentheses is the confidence interval. As you can see in the highlighted line, the confidence interval does not include one. This is interpreted as compared to eating most meals at home, eating most meals at a dining facility lowered the odds of body composition failure by 2.27 times. For those of you who are wondering how a point estimate of 0.44 equated to 2.27 lower odds, when you have a confidence interval that is below one, you take the inverse to translate it to odds by dividing 1.0 by your point estimate, which in this case equals 2.27. All right, so now let's look at a raised odds example. Um, in this example, the referent group was those who said they had a moderate eating rate. As you can see, the highlighted confidence intervals do not include one, which tells us that the eating rate was significantly associated with two outcomes. This is interpreted as eating at a fast rate raised the odds of failing body composition and physical fitness standards by 1.51 times and 1.42 times, respectively. This can also be interpreted as eating at a fast rate relative to a moderate rate was associated with 51% and 42% higher odds of failing body composition and physical fitness standards. So now that we've been through some uh, statistically significant results, Let's talk about interpreting them in the context of practical significance. It's important to think about your results and how meaningful they are in real life, even if they are statistically significant. As you may recall in our effect size calculation, we said we wanted to be able to detect a small effect size or an odds ratio of 1.2, which equates to 20% higher odds. In the eating rate example, results showed 51% and 42% higher odds of two of our outcomes, but is this meaningful? We think so because studies in both military and civilian populations have linked eating fast to higher BMI, and findings are also consistent with previous studies suggesting that Army training may facilitate the development of eating behaviors that contribute to undesirable weight and performance outcomes among soldiers such as fast eating. So based on what we know about the military environment and based on what we know about height, height and weight standards and BMI standards and physical fitness, we felt that this was a, a practical or a significant um, difference that I, I guess I could say has practical significance. So it was not only statistically significant, but it also seemed practically significant because of our population and because of what we know about the types of um, 
factors that are involved in eating behaviors and some of these outcomes that we were interested in measuring. All right, so let's talk about some of the strengths and limitations here. It is important to address both the strengths of the methods used in the study and the limitations. So a strength of logistic regression is that it is relatively easy to implement, mostly because there are fewer assumptions to check prior to running models than other regression techniques. This output is relatively easy to understand and interpret, especially once you become more practiced at it. A limitation is that logistic regression can't handle missing data, so it excludes volunteers who are missing data on any of the variables. There are ways to do linear regression models that allow you to keep volunteers in your analytical sample as long as they aren't missing on your dependent variable, but logistic regression doesn't allow this. It also requires larger sample sizes than linear regression. Our study had almost 2,000 volunteers, so it wasn't an issue in this case. We also had diverse samples from across the U.S., but the cross-sectional design means we can't make statements about causality, even though we think we have an idea about what is causing some of these behaviors and what their effect is. Another issue is that the questionnaire is subject to self-report bias. Although soldiers are very aware of their physical fitness scores and body composition, as studies have shown high correlation between observed and self-report physical fitness data in this population. We also believe that using validated tools designed for a military population improved the quality of the data we collected. Um, we do know that based on the fact that um, adherence with body composition and physical fitness standards does really have an impact on careers, we do know that soldiers really do pay attention to these things. So we feel um, pretty good about some of the um, information that we collected, particularly related to the outcomes. But we do recognize that questionnaires are always subject to self-report bias, particularly if they think that the uh, researchers are looking for a particular answer. All right. So just so you can also get an idea of this before I move on, is that a rule of thumb is a reasonable sample size for a logistic regression model is at least 10 volunteers per independent variable. But this will also vary based on the parameters of your power analysis. This can be very different based on um, sort of when we think about a general rule for uh, linear regression, meaning that we need at least 30 volunteers. So obviously, when you're thinking about 10 volunteers per independent variable, we can really get to needing a very large sample size very quickly, um, particularly when, you know, you have multiple uh, independent variables that you want to look at. So just a couple of differences there between that and some of the uh, independent variables, or I'm sorry, uh, some other regression techniques such as linear regression. All right, so that, that concludes the bulk of the presentation, but before we get into the discussion, I'd like to take a moment to recognize my co-authors on this publication, as well as the soldiers who volunteered as participants and our funding source. Um, there is a link to the full article in the publication on the development of the questionnaire if anyone is interested. All right, and then there's a few references if anyone would like to review those. And so um, I'm happy to take any discussions or questions at this point. Thank you so much. As people have questions, they can put those into the question box, and then I can share those with our presenter. Uh, so one question uh, that I had was, how did you, how do you determine to use 80% power? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's essentially. Um, 
I think a, a standard at this point. You could certainly adjust it. Um, I think that's pretty much a pretty well-recognized uh, sort of cut point for where you're going to minimize the risk of your type 2 error. Um, and, you know, that's really important that when you're setting up your power analysis that you're able to explain the choices that you made, right? How did you get to your final sample size? And so one of those is, is, is looking at what is the literature say? What do other... Um, um, published studies use in their uh, same type of, you know, power analysis they've, that they've done for a similar um, type of, of uh, you know, question or analysis that they've done. And so 80% 80, 80 power is just kind of typical. Um, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a, a right or a wrong answer. It's just important to be able to justify what you use, but there's certainly a lot out there um, in terms of what is usually done or what is sort of the accepted um, parameters for doing this sort of power analysis. And then another question, so the, you found that uh, members who ate more quickly uh, mm -hmm. had were more likely to have higher BMIs. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, that's uh, correct. So how would that then inform recommendations you would make to either service members or to people in authority over them? Yeah, so we've, we've found this, um, this, the findings from this study actually corroborate other studies that we've done on this topic. And um, what we think is that the eating environment that our uh, service members are being exposed to very early on in their careers are actually influencing them to um, make uh, or to change their eating behaviors in such a way that's then detrimental to then meeting Army standards. And so what we've been able to do is now that we've, you know, seen this in a variety of different ways, can we add in education to our senior leaders um, at various points to where they can understand what some of the ramifications are? Um, can we make adjustments to the sort of um, environment in our basic training um, so that we are essentially allowing them to, to have more time to um, eat their meals and potentially, um, you know, not override some of those internal satiety cues that we think are actually very helpful. Um, so there are things that we can do to start making recommendations. Um, and so this is essentially a growing body of work that's really looking at impact of some of our environment um, exposures of our service members on some of these factors that we really think just aren't aren't helpful in the long term. So I would say that this is still work that's in progress as far as being translated to policy or programs, but we are starting to gain some traction and having meaningful conversations with stakeholders on, you know, how can we make changes to the environment that will hopefully improve um, long-term sorts of outcomes for our service members. Yeah, thank you. Another a question we have from a listener, how many men and women completed the questionnaires? Yep, so we had a sample size of 1,859, I believe. Um, so we had about, um, you know, the, the type of environment that we go out and we do these sorts of work in, it's very different from perhaps getting like an email link that you might see and you go online and you might ignore the email or you might go ahead and do it. Um, when we go out and we do these sorts of data collections, we actually have our volunteers in usually a large training area or a large conference room. Um, that's sort of their place of duty. It is a volunteer type of um, environment, meaning that they can decide to participate if they'd like. 
Um, they're not required to do so. But once they do start, they we, we sort of filter through the room. We're there to answer questions. Once they complete, we take up their questionnaires. We check it over for completion. And so we have very good um, uh, completion rate. So unlike, you know, other sorts of, of, of questionnaire type or survey type uh, research, you might see, you know, anywhere from, you know, 40 to 50 percent completion, and that's a pretty good rate. So we typically see about 80 to 90 percent completion um, for those that we briefed. And so we had very few soldiers who did not uh, volunteer to to um, participate. And then, you know, they're on duty, so they're gonna, they were fine to do the questionnaire. And so we had about 1,800 complete total. And then another question from one of our participants, do you think, or one of our listeners, do you think BMI and body tape measurements were an accurate assessment for women and were there any gender differences? Right. So um, this study really was not looking at whether or not the body fat assessment that the Army uses, which is based on body circumference, was accurate or not. Um, there are some studies that are currently undergoing and some review of that as a method. And so that was, that's a little bit of a separate question. Um, for us, we were more interested in specifically if they had failed or not and what sort of eating behaviors, um, you know, might be associated with failure or, or potentially not failing, right? So um, we have done other work in our group to look at the specific sort of weight management behaviors that our service members are using leading up to um, having that that sort of um, like BMI assessment or those who don't need the BMI assessment but having the body composition tape test done. So I think that that's a very valid question that the Army is reviewing and that's work that we're doing at Ustarium to look at um, how accurate is the assessment and are there better tools for measuring that um, but this study really didn't didn't look at that question specifically um, we really just wanted to see if there were particular eating behaviors that those who perhaps were you know passing or or not passing were were implementing and then how can we implement then perhaps some sort of guidance to our to our service members on what might be helpful behaviors and what might be less helpful yeah, thank you um, if someone was getting ready to start a project where they were going to be using logistic regression, what advice would you give them before they before they start their project? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned before, we need larger samples with logistic regression. So making sure that you're accounting for that early on in your in your power analysis, which is usually part of a study protocol that you're looking at to make sure that you're planning to get enough of a sample size. Um, but also thinking about logistic regression as um, it's a good tool. Um, you lose some information when you're essentially using a dichotomous yes or no question. So, for example, if we were to have looked at what eating behaviors were associated with BMI and we were to use BMI continuously, not just whether or not they had failed their BMI um, or their body fat assessment, um, we would have been able to potentially find things that were a little bit more nuanced. Like we would have maybe found that, you know, those who skipped breakfast, that was associated with a, you know, higher BMI or a lower we would think probably a higher BMI based on some other work that we've done, but a higher BMI. And we could actually equate that to, say, number of pounds. The average soldier who was skipping BMI or skipping breakfast had a BMI that equated to a number of pounds difference. 
So you can see that there's a little bit more potentially of a nuance there that you could find if your variables are continuous versus dichotomous. Um, so I would say that, you know, you, you, if you have the opportunity to, um, you know, write the, the dream research project and you can really make your research questions however you want them to be, just keep in mind that there's pros and cons with all the different types of, of analysis options that you use. Um, logistic regression can be very helpful for doing like, um, observational studies, so we're looking at like exposure for this particular study. We really wanted to understand sort of exposure to the Army environment and what are some of those eating behaviors? How is that increasing or decreasing their odds of some of these outcomes? But there's really, there's really, um, things that can be gleaned from having a more, um, a more robust question that might be able to get at some nuance that you just can't get at with logistic regression. I want to thank you so much for sharing with us today. I know the hugging, the confidence interval, I had never heard that before, and that will definitely stick in my mind as a great way, um, hugging the one <laughs> to yeah. reject the null. So thank you for, I, I just wanted to point out that really stood out to me as a great way to illustrate that. Um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and sharing your time with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, at this point, I can hand it back to Rachel. All right. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, and thank you, Dr. Jane, for your service to our country and for what you're doing to um, help improve the health of the men and women in, in the service. Much appreciated. Um, um, thank you. Um, as I close out the webinar, there'll be a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this sec this session as well as ideas for future sessions and then watch for the email follow-up probably Wednesday of this week uh, with a link to the recording the handout and your CEU certificate um, we actually have two other webinar programs this week um, as well as if you have not signed up to participate in the 21-day um, racial equity challenge it's not too late um, the the actual readings started today, um, but the discussion section, the discussion section is Thursday evening. So, um, lots to see on the SNEB website, um, as well as we're hoping to launch conference registration yet this week. So, uh, be sure to check the website for all of those updates and we will be back with Journal Club next Monday. Thank you all.